All right, take your Bibles and turn, if you will, to Luke chapter 8. We're going to finish up Luke 8 today, just kind of so you're aware of, of where we're heading on Sunday mornings. We'll rack, wrap up Luke 8 this morning, then we'll spend two weeks in Luke chapter 9. We'll get down to probably, Lord willing, verse uh, through verse 17. Um, and then Trevor's going to preach for a couple weeks for us, and that will actually, believe it or not, take us into November. Um, and in November, we're doing a missions-focused month. We'll actually have uh, at least two guest speakers and also some, some folks from our own uh, group to speak as well. And so um, you'll get a break from listening to me every Sunday. And then uh, December will come, and we probably won't be in Luke for December. And so actually, we'll have three weeks here in Luke, and then we'll pick it back up in January, which seems like a long way away, but maybe you're tired of Luke. And uh, this will give us a time to step back, and when we come back to Luke, you'll say, oh, all right, I remember this. This is good stuff. So I think it will be a good a good hiatus for us. But we're in Luke chapter 8, and we'll be looking at verses 40 through 56 this morning. Uh, our house is, um, it's not on a really busy intersection or a, uh, a really exciting street. We live on Radiance Road, and it's nice and quiet. Um, there's not much that really happens, and so we take note of the little things that happen all over the place. If someone's getting trees cut or uh, if someone's moving in or moving out, you, you take notice of those things. When we lived in Mokina, we lived on Wolf Road on the third floor of a four-story building in a condo, and that was a busy street. Wolf Road was a main drag. There were um, railroad tracks that crossed the metro line, so you could see people always going out to the metro in the mornings and, or maybe running to catch the train. It was in the heart of downtown Mokina, which wasn't really that special to be honest, but but you were there. There were there were things happening. Uh, the Fourth of July parade came right down Wolf Road. We could sit on our balcony and watch it. Um, you could see the Memorial Day parade that would come by. And so it was kind of a, a happening place. It was a it was a busy intersection. There was always something going on in that area. We're, we're going to see here. I bring that up just thinking about intersections, about where where things cross, where things meet, and that, that's where, where things happen. Uh, amazing things, astonishing things, surprising things sometimes. And here, what we find is is the intersection of the power of Jesus and the faith of people. And and the main thing that I think I want us to draw this morning is that astonishing things happen at the intersection of Jesus' power and our faith. If you want to think about those two things, the, the power of Jesus and our faith, astonishing things happen at the intersection of, of Jesus' power and our faith. When those two things come together, it's like it's like gasoline and a lighted match. It's like uh, baking soda and vinegar. I was trying to come up with illustrations, but I didn't really have any good ones. So, But it, it's something astonishing and amazing happens when those two things come together. Now, nothing threatens the power of Jesus, but there are things that threaten our faith. There are things that cause the faith part to not be in the formula. There are things that weaken our faith or taint it. There are people, events, circumstances, a host of other things that cause us to doubt. Cause us to doubt the power, the power of Jesus rather than to believe who he is. Maybe it's fear. Fear can, can take over. Fear of others. Fear of disappointment. Fear of failure. And fear always kills faith. And we're going to see as we go through this that, that there's instances of faith and there's also things that, that want to squelch faith, that want to push it down and and that the the <clears throat> excuse me the people in the story 
overcome these obstacles. They overcome the obstacles to faith, and they believe in the power of Jesus. And when that happens, the power of Jesus and their faith intersect, and astonishing things happen. Let's read these accounts here in Luke chapter 8, and we'll read verses 40 through 56. Now when Jesus returned, speaking of when he returned from uh, the Gerasenes, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. And Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him, and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him, except Peter and John and James, and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned. And she got up at once, and he, re- he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Astonishing things happen at the intersection of Jesus' power and our faith. Jesus returns, we see in verse 40, he returns from his trip across the Sea of Galilee, and there waiting for him is this crowd of, of people. It's kind of a contrast from last week. If you remember last week, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the town had basically pushed Jesus into the boat and said, please leave. And, And as he got into the boat and sailed across the Sea of Galilee, here is a group of people standing on the seashore that, that all but pull him out of the boat. I imagine that that they'd been waiting for some time for him to come back. Maybe they'd even camped out on the seashore, not knowing when he would return, but wanting to be there when it happened. And I imagine maybe as the boat came ashore that sort of a a shout of excitement and joy went up when they realized, hey, it's Jesus and he's come back. The Gospels mention the crowds all the time, but it's interesting that the Gospels are also always filled with stories about individuals, specific people from within those crowds, testimonies of people that really had interaction with Jesus. And there are two people in particular in this crowd that are brought to the forefront of the story. And the first is this guy named Jarius. Jarius, the text tells us, was a ruler 
of the synagogue, which means that uh, he was a leader in the town synagogue there, the Jewish synagogue. He would have been well-respected. Uh, he probably would have been a very righteous man. And, and as all the crowd pushes forward to, to meet Jesus and, and to talk with him, Jairus is, is either brought to the front because of his position, or maybe he just is at the right place at the right time, and he's there in front of Jesus, and it says that, that he fell to his knees. Falls to his knees and he begged Jesus. He falls to his knees just as, as the man possessed with demons uh, last week did. He falls to his knees and he begs of Jesus. He begs Jesus to come to his house. Why? Because his only child, his 12-year-old daughter, is sick. In fact, she's not just sick, but she is dying. You get this picture of this very powerful, well-respected man who is completely helpless. He, he can't do anything to save his daughter. And he falls at the feet of Jesus and asks for mercy. He asks for help. It's a good reminder, isn't it? That that's where we, how we all come to Jesus. We all come on our knees, helpless, hopeless, apart from him. You might imagine the, uh, the uh, emotion in the man's voice, maybe the tears in his eyes as he begs Jesus to come and to help his little girl who is dying. It's interesting, there's no specific request that's mentioned here, and there's no response from Jesus that's recorded, but it's obvious that Jesus is filled with compassion for this man, and so they begin to head to his house, they begin to follow there, and, and, and as he begins to leave, the crowd, seeing that Jesus is going to go do something, possibly perform a miracle, they say, well, let's, let's go with him, and, and they start to press in on Jesus. Literally, it says that the crowd choked him. It says that there in the um, in second part of verse 42, and Jesus went, the people pressed around him, choked him. It's the same word that's used for the, for the weeds choking out the seed that, that springs up earlier in chapter 8. So they are pressing in on Jesus. You, you know what this feels like maybe if you've ever been to Thunder Over Louisville or uh, some other major event where there's a lot of people gathered in a small area. Everyone's pushing together bumping into each other, jostling for, for some sort of, of spot. You can't really go anywhere you want to. You just sort of go where the crowd tells you to go, and you might find yourself looking at the person next to you, and you think, I wouldn't even stand this close to my best friend, and yet somehow I'm smashed against this perfect stranger, but you can't really do anything about it because you're, you're in this, this crowd and, and you're stuck. Well, that's kind of what's going on here, I think, is the picture. Everyone is just mashed together and, and the crowd is is moving around and so they're heading to Jairus's house but before they finish before Luke finishes this first story about Jesus he he inserts a, a second one in the middle of this sea of people there's a there's a second person that shows up she's identified here simply as a woman <coughs> excuse me and and she's not anything in particular special she's she's not like Jairus I mean Jairus was a a leader in the synagogue. In fact, this woman wasn't just not special. She probably was a, a total outcast, almost like a, like a leper, because of a physical condition that she had. Namely, it says it's a discharge or, or a flow of blood. It's hard to know exactly what was going on here. It may have been some sort of ongoing menstrual cycle that kept her unclean and that caused her physical issues and maybe even pain. 
whatever the pain was, though, it was not as bad as the emotional pain of being shunned by society. Because the Levitical law said that if this was going on, then, then you were not allowed, you were, you were ritually unclean. You could not go to worship. Other people could not touch you because they would become unclean. It would have caused issues within her family, you can think, between her and her husband, between her and her kids. She's, she's continually unclean and shunned by society. It's a miserable situation, and it's obviously miserable. She does whatever she can do to get out of it. We're told that she spends all that she has, all of her living, on physicians, but then it says she could not be healed by anyone that no one could help her. It's it's a terrible situation. After 12 years of pain and heartache, she is not only still sick, but she's broke. She has no money left. So think about this. For as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive, 12 years, this woman's life has been falling apart around her slowly but surely. Dr. Luke mentions that the situation has moved into the realm of the hopeless what Dr. Luke doesn't mention that Mark mentions is Mark says she had suffered at the hands of many doctors. <laughs> I wonder if Luke didn't mention that on purpose to protect his, his fellow doctors. Uh, but she's dealt with this d disease for years now. No one can help her. She may have been optimistic in year one, but by year 12, that she's without hope. You might imagine her coming home from her last doctor's visit, the last one that was nearby. She comes home, and she has no money left. She's told she's a lost cause. She doesn't know what to do. She's in despair. And in the midst of her despair, someone comes and says, have you, have you heard about Jesus? And they start to tell her about who Jesus is. Jesus, the man with, with power over disease that brings, that brings healing to disease. Jesus, the man who's, who's not afraid to touch lepers. This woman who was unclean, that, that Jesus wouldn't be afraid to talk to her. Jesus, who cares for women who even invites them to be a part of his ministry and to be a part of what he's doing. Jesus, who began his ministry with these words, you remember them in chapter 4 in the synagogue in Nazareth. Jesus, who said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus, who was due back at the Sea of Galilee any moment. <laughs> and so we imagine that that's where this woman decides to go. And she goes and she joins in the crowd. She stands there just full of faith, looking for the opportunity to, to touch Jesus. Not even to touch Jesus. She says, I just want to touch the, I just want to touch the, the part of his clothes. And if I just do that, then, then I'll be healed. Some people say there may have been some superstition mixed in with her faith here. And that, that possibly could be, but her faith is real. It is it's genuine. Whatever she doesn't understand, she knows that if she touches Jesus, just the, just his clothes, that she will be healed. And as she's doing this, she's content to remain unknown. She doesn't feel like she needs to go to Jesus and speak out loud. She just wants to receive the healing and allow, allow Jesus to move on, and she'll go on her way as, as well, fade back into the crowd. And so you might imagine this, this crowd, remember, where they're all heading out to to Jairus' place to see what Jesus is going to do. And the woman's there, and she maybe just finds herself at the right place at the right time. And in God's sovereignty, Jesus just sort of walks right right by her, and she sneaks up behind him. It says that she came up behind him is what happened. She sneaks up behind him, so Jesus definitely didn't see her. And she just reaches out and touches 
the hem of his garment, the, the tassel it might be that the rabbis would have worn, on the, maybe up near his shoulder, and she just reaches up and touches that. And immediately she was healed. That, that, that's what it says here. It says immediately, in, in, an, in an instant, she, she reaches out, she touches him, and she knew, she knew right then that she had been healed from this disease. For 12 years she'd suffered. No one could help her. And in a moment, touching not even Jesus himself, just his clothes, and immediately she is healed, and she knows it. And she's not the only one who knows it. <laughs> she thinks she's the only one who knows it. But Jesus knows it too, because he stops. Probably much to Jairus' dismay, they're trying to get there as quick as they can. And Jesus stops and says, who touched me? <laughs> It, it's funny. It's comical because everyone around him is like, I didn't. They probably had. Maybe they bumped him. But I, I hit your shoulder, Jesus. I didn't really touch you. And and so Peter points out the obvious. He says, Master, come on. He says that you're totally surrounded by people. The crowd is pressing in on you. It's it's the word used for for squeezing a grape until it bursts. I mean, we're just squished here, Jesus. But Jesus persists, doesn't he? He says, No, I know that someone touched me. Someone touched me. Why do I know it? For I perceive. That power has gone out from me. What an amazing thing. Someone touched me, he says, because power has gone out from me. Here it is. This, is. this is the intersection of faith and power, isn't it? That Jesus, full of power, is touched by a woman full of faith. And in that moment, something astonishing happens. The woman reaches out and touches Jesus in, in humble faith. And Jesus is filled with power and the faith of this woman interacts with the power of Jesus, the intersection happened, this amazing thing happens. Was this an accidental miracle? Did Jesus not mean to heal this woman? She just reached out and, hey, power went out for me. I didn't even mean for it to happen. <laughs> I don't think so. And does Jesus really not know who touched him? It could be that he doesn't know. It could be that, that, that maybe he doesn't know, but... I just wonder, when he asks this question, who touched me, if he's not staring at the woman as he says it. And the reason I say that is because it says here in verse 47, and when the woman saw that she, that she was not hidden, how, how did she know she wasn't hidden? It may have been just that Jesus waited long enough that she realized he is not moving until I come forward and tell them what happened. But I just wonder too, if, if he wasn't, looking at her and saying, who touched me? And, and maybe smiling. Wanting her to come out from the crowd. Wanting her to, to testify, to say that she was healed. E either way, whatever it is, however you want to take it, she comes forward. And just like the man possessed with demons, just like, like Jairus, she falls down at Jesus' feet. She's trembling, probably with joy and with fear, not knowing what's going to happen next. And there on her knees it says that she told... Everyone in the crowd, she says, why she had touched Jesus. She says, this was premeditated. I knew what I was doing. I was coming here for this very purpose. And then she tells them what happened, that she had been immediately healed. And Jesus looks at her, and what does he say? Isn't this beautiful? He says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Literally, your faith has saved you. It's the exact same phrase, exact same phrase with the addition of the daughter as at the end of chapter 7 that he says to the sinful woman that was at Simon's house, your faith has saved you, go in peace. 
So there's a there's a miracle that happens. She's healed from this disease, but there's something deeper going on too, something spiritual where she is she is saved in this unique sense. Daughter, your faith has saved you. So what is Jesus doing? That's the question we're asked. Why does Jesus stop and tell her to come forward? This is what I think is going on. I think Jesus is taking her as a as a secret disciple a secret follower, a secret woman full of faith, and he he wants to bring her out. He doesn't want to let her fade into the background. He wants her to come out and give glory to God. She's been healed, and he wants everyone to know it. He wants her to stand as an example of his power over disease and the power of faith. Remember, this is what we're learning. We're learning about who Jesus is. We've seen he's the Lord of creation. We've seen that he has authority over demons in the unseen world. And this woman stands forward as a testimony that he has power over disease. He has authority over disease. And this event proclaims that. And he has to bring this woman out so that she can testify to that fact. And now think, during this whole event, what's going on? Jairus is there. And Jairus cares about this woman. Yes, I think he, he has compassion for her. And yet all he can think about is, we got to get going. We, we need to move. My daughter is dying, Jesus. It's interesting, too. It says here that, <clears throat> verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. It, it, he... There's this, Jesus says to the woman, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And and in that same moment, a man from Jairus' house comes and says, your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. What an amazing turn here. There's this beautiful picture of faith and power and then almost a helpless situation here. This messenger... Man, this, this messenger is, this is the, the perfect example of a person with a limited view of Jesus' power. That he doesn't understand who Jesus is. This is a man who is set in contrast to the woman that was filled with faith, right? I mean, this woman believed, and now this man comes and he stands as an obstacle to faith. What's he called Jesus? He says, don't bother the teacher. I think that's all he thought he was. He's a, he's a, he was a teacher. He seems to believe that maybe he had power over disease, but death? Maybe he told Jarius not even to go. I don't know, Jarius. And he says, don't bother the teacher anymore. He can't handle this situation now. This man represents those who have a, a limited view of the power of Jesus, of those who would say Jesus is a great teacher, but he didn't really perform any miracles. you got to be kidding me. They say maybe he was a unique prophet. He was anointed by God. But he didn't rise from the dead. You really believe that? Jesus was an example of sacrificial love. But he's not going to return again, raise us up to be with him, reign in power, judge the world in righteousness. All those voices. These voices are all around us, aren't they? I mean, and they rise up from within us. They just, they tell us, don't believe. Don't believe. Don't believe. Don't, don't think about how Jesus is not strong enough for this. These voices, they, they push us from faith to to doubt, they pull us away from bold trust in who Jesus is and in his power towards weak faith that refuses to risk because of fear. We just don't think he can do what he says he can do. And so Jesus, even as he's speaking these words to this woman, daughter, your faith has saved you, 
hears this guy saying, don't bother the teacher anymore, she's dead. And he turns from this woman full of faith and sees this guy who is squelching faith. And what does he say? He hears the counsel to Jairus and he looks at Jairus and he says, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. Don't fear, only believe. Isn't that great counsel? Don't be afraid, only believe. And, and in my mind, maybe I'm imagining this too much, but it's, it's as if time stops and, and Jarius is at this crossroads. He has this, this crisis of faith. What's he going to do? Is he going to, in fear, tell Jesus, don't worry about it? Or is he, in faith, going to say, maybe? Maybe he can do it. So pull back for a minute from this whole situation. Jairus is at this crisis of faith. And, and I just want to ask the question, why do the gospel writers bring these two stories together? All Matthew, Mark, Luke all do it. They're intertwined. Why? Why is, that, why is it this way? I think there's a few reasons. First, they, they combine to show us who Jesus is. They show his power over disease, and we're going to see death. That, that I think those things are brought together. The other thing is, is Luke's point. Remember Luke says, Jesus is the Savior of the world. Isn't it interesting? Jairus, the synagogue ruler, does not receive preferential treatment over a broke woman who's been sick for 12 years. That Jesus stops. He doesn't say, you know what? I don't have time for you right now because Jairus would like me to come to his house. No, he, he has compassion for this woman. He stops. He knows what's going on, and he shows love towards her. Why? Because she is his daughter. She's a part of his family. Because who's a part of Jesus' family? Those who are truly a part of Jesus' family, chapter 8, verse 21, are those who act on their understanding of who Jesus is. Isn't that interesting? She is his daughter because of that. But third, and this is what I want to say, I think that I, I think this woman comes forth as an example for Jairus in his crisis moment. Jerry, go back to, to Jairus' crisis of faith. I, I imagine Jesus tells him, believe. He And Jairus maybe, if I'm... If I'm making a movie out of this, Jairus at this point then looks to the man who's brought counsel from his house, and he sees him, and the guy's just shaking his head. No, Jairus, just don't. We've done enough. I mean, you've you've come out here, and it's it's just not it's not going to happen. He he can't heal your daughter now because she's dead. So he looks at at him, and then I just see him look at at this woman that has just been filled with faith, and she's kneeling on the ground probably still with a smile from ear to ear, and, and she just is saying, yeah, go. He can do it. He, he just he healed me in this instant. Brother, go. He has power that you can't even imagine. And he's stuck at this crossroads. Who's he going to believe? Is he going to believe this counsel, this faith-squelching counsel? Or is he going to, this woman he's never met before, who's kneeling in the dirt, and who has just been healed after 12 years of hopeless sickness. And I think that this, I think that they're intertwined in part so that this woman, so below Jarius in, in, in society, and yet leaps and bounds above him maybe in faith, that her faith strengthens Jarius's faith to the point that he says, okay, let's go. I don't know, but I've got enough faith. Jesus, in his divine wisdom, in his perfect timing, gives Jairus the example of faith that he needs. Jesus knew what was going on with Jairus' daughter, I think. He may have even known that she was dead before they left the beach. 
And so he heals this woman, and then he draws her out of the crowd. He forces her out of the crowd, compels her, give your testimony of faith. Tell who I am for everyone else here and for Jarius in particular, because he's going to need it in about three seconds. And it shows that he has absolute power, instantaneous power over disease. And so maybe, just maybe, he's got power over death as well. Brothers and sisters, this is the beauty of the church, isn't it? This is why we have Sunday school. This is why we have Sunday evening. This is why we gather for small groups. This is why you get together with other brothers and sisters in Christ, because it's a time that we gather together as believers in Jesus, and we tell our stories about when the power of Jesus intersects with our faith and something astonishing happens, because we all need to hear that. And we need to see some real-life examples of, of how that happens so that we can be encouraged. Now, it may, not, it may be something small. You know, what happened with this woman was smaller than what Jairus needed. She was healed from disease. She wasn't raised from the dead. But her faith in that smaller thing was what he needed to get him to believe in something greater. And this is what we, we have to do. We have to come together. Some of us, we want to fade to the background like this woman. Let me just receive the healing that I need, the help that I need in this moment, and then I'd like to not tell anyone about it. And Jesus wants us. He's drawing us out and he's saying, you need to share it. You need to tell someone because we got to hear this. we got to see it in real life, because if I don't see it in someone else's life, it's hard for me to believe. We think I'm the only person that's dealing with this, and Jesus is not doing anything else. When in each individual life, small, big, something is going on, your faith is intersecting with Jesus' power, and something is happening, and we need to all hear it. We need to talk about it so that we encourage the faith that we have. And again, it may be your testimony of something lesser fuels the faith of someone that's walking through something that's much greater. But God's faithfulness in that small thing spurs them on to believe that he can handle the bigger thing that's in their life. And so at that crisis of faith, Jesus and Jairus move on. And they go, he says, all right, Jesus, let's see what's going to happen. There's a seed of faith there. And they arrive, and the mourners and the weepers are already there. I mean, Jairus was a synagogue official. They probably all knew what was going on. Friends and family have already arrived. They walk into the house. It's filled with the sounds of death. And Jesus walks in, and what's the first thing he says? Don't weep. <laughs> Don't weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. Now, it's obvious that the girl is truly dead. Jesus is not confused. And it's not that she's just asleep, okay? It's clear. She was dead. That's why they laugh at him. Because she truly was dead. So what is Jesus saying? I think Jesus is not confused, but rather he's speaking the, the true reality of the situation. What he's saying is, don't weep because this is just temporary. It's, it's just like she's asleep. It's temporary. And they laugh. And as they laugh, again, faith is threatened, isn't it? If you're Jairus and you walk in the house and all your closest relatives, when they hear Jesus say, she's not dead, she's just sleeping, and they all laugh at that moment, who are they laughing at? They're laughing at you. And you're thinking, oh, I can't believe I did this. I brought him in. And, and, and faith wants to get to go out. And that happens in our lives, doesn't it? That people laugh, people mock, people say, you really believe that stuff? It rises up within us too. Do I really believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Do I really believe even this, this story itself? 
Do I believe that the Bible is true? People laugh and mock, and it threatens faith. So what does Jesus do? He kicks them all out of the room. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? He says, you all can leave. If you don't want to believe, then you're not going to see. If you don't have faith, then you won't witness the astounding things I'm going to do. Who's he bring in? Mom and Dad, you come. We're going to bring Peter, James, and John. I think because they believed and also because he wanted to show them what was going on. He wanted to reveal their, his power to them as well. But isn't that, I think that's powerful. If, if you don't want to believe, that's fine. Just You're just going to miss out on the astonishment. When faith and the power of Jesus intersect, you won't be there to see what happens. And even if it does happen, you probably won't believe. I think that the, I think the girl walked out of that room and some people said, oh, she must have not been dead. I don't think they believed that she was raised from the dead. They didn't want to. They didn't have eyes to see. They didn't have ears to hear. And so if, if we want to doubt, that's fine. If you don't want to believe in the power of Jesus, fine. You won't be in the room when the astonishing things happen. You won't even get to the place where you're able to, to want to see the astonishing things happen. Don't be afraid of the laughter of others. And so now we're in the little girl's room. The door is shut. Silence has taken over. And Jesus comes beside the bed. It's a tender scene, isn't it? He takes her by the hand. And he says, child, arise. That, that command, arise, in fact, it's, it's the same thing that her mom and dad probably would have said to her maybe a few mornings before when she wasn't sick to just wake her up. Child, wake up. It's, it's the same word that you would use to say, wake up. And Luke tells us that at the word of Jesus, verse 55, her spirit returned and she got up at once. It's at once here in the ESV. It's immediately. It's the same word about the woman being healed immediately. And she told how she had been healed immediately. And this girl got up immediately. When Jesus heals, he does it immediately and he does it fully. Nobody's limping around. Maybe she's raised from the dead, maybe not. No, this is real. She immediately is healed. Faith and the power of Jesus intersect in that room, and in an instant, something astonishing happens. The song says, he speaks, and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. Isn't that wonderful? What, a, what power Jesus has. He speaks and he calls this... This girl back from death. It, it, we, we learn something about death here, don't we? The death is not just the stopping of breathing or of blood flow, but rather it's the separation of body and spirit, because the spirit is gone. The spirit is what returns. So when we die, anyone who dies, their spirit departs. We are all created with a spirit that will never die, a soul that will never die. That's what we all have. And every one of us, when we die, it's not just that we stop breathing or the blood stops, but actually our spirit separates from our body. And it goes one of two places. It goes to be with the Father, to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord, Paul says. Or it goes to a place of punishment. It descends to eternal punishment in hell. It's just the reality that is said here, that, that what happens is the Spirit leaves. And in and, and this, it's amazing, the Spirit comes back to this girl. She gets up. And then Jesus, who is always very practical, says, give her something to eat. <laughs> That's what she needs. She needs to build up her strength. 
Right. And then he does even more practical. He tells the parents not to tell anyone what's happened. <laughs> now, wait a minute. Well, what about all the people outside of the room that have seen this happen, right? I mean, someone's going to find out what happened. Don't tell anyone. And then she gets up and walks out of the room, and they say, no, wait a minute. So what, what's going on here? We, we remember about this. This is the messianic secret to a certain extent. So, so Jesus is in part saying I, I, he's doing these miracles, but he needs the ministry to last for a little while so he can't become too popular or too hated too quickly, right? So he needs to squelch this to a certain extent. Otherwise, everyone's going to grab him and want to make him king. I think the other thing here is there's a sensitivity to this young girl. This is a 12-year-old girl that has just died and been raised from the dead. And he tells her parents, I think part of what he's saying is don't exploit this. Don't, don't make too big a deal out of this. He warns the parents, I think, not to make a spectacle of, of what has happened. I really, I want to be careful, but I think this is a good warning. I think it's a kind warning, and I think it's a warning that we need to think about in our day and age when everything is exploited, when everything is thrown on the front page of the newspaper or brought on the talk shows and everything is, is made a spectacle of. I think that there's, there's something here that we need to give a second thought. We need to give a second thought to these, the push, especially lately, for these near-death experiences, especially with children that are then promoted and made bestsellers all over the place. We've got to be careful because I think that's what Jesus is doing here. I think it's very interesting in the Gospels of the people that, that die and come back from the dead, there is no account of what they saw or did during the time period when they were not alive. Paul refers to the time when he died and went to the third heaven, but it's he says, I'm not allowed to say what happened. And so we have all these experiences where people say, I died and was raised from the dead, or I, I died and came back to life, and here's everything that I saw. There's nothing like that in all the scripture, and it truly happened with these folks. So I just want to say, as a pastor, watch out. Be, 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 be careful with that stuff. Because I don't, we know heaven is for real because Jesus told us that it was. That's how I know heaven is for real. Not because someone went there and came back. Not because someone else went there and came back, but because Jesus went there and came back. That Jesus is the one who's conquered death. And so I just want to say that as a pastoral caution. I feel like maybe that's what Jesus is doing here, and then we'll move on. If you have more questions about that, let me know. <laughs> but I think the other, the other thing that I want to just push now is the other reason that he squelches this and says, don't make a huge deal out of this, is because he wants to emphasize what this raising from the dead is really speaking to, isn't it? Because Jesus is not setting up shop in the graveyard and raising people from the dead. He doesn't go down to the hospital and just heal everyone. He's, that's not his ministry, right? What's he doing? He's, he's teaching, and all the miracles are pointing to something greater, to the greater reality, to the greater spiritual truth that is coming, that I have power over disease, therefore I have power over sin, and I can forgive your sins, and that's what you really need. Because some disease will kill you eventually. But if you have forgiveness of sins, then you are saved forever. I have power over death. And the point is that I can deliver you from eternal death. That you can be saved by faith. All the miracles of Jesus. When people focus so much on the physical miracles of Jesus, it's, it's an error, I think, because Jesus didn't. Jesus keeps saying, don't make a big deal out of this. Let's talk about your soul. Let's talk about that if you die, will you be saved from the wrath to come? 
Jesus comes and his message is that he's come not just to cure us from disease, but to cure us from the disease of sin. Not, not just to bring people back from the dead, but to give us eternal life. And so if you get caught up with a miracle, recognize this is what Jesus is saying. If you will repent and believe, I will forgive your sins forever. And if you die, the sting of death is gone because I have conquered death. That's ultimately what we need. So in all of these things, what have we been seeing all through chapter 8? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? He's the Lord of creation. He's the one that speaks to the wind and the waves, and they listen to him. He, he has authority over demons in the unseen world. He's the one that speaks to a man filled with innumerable demons, and they all bow to him and leave when he tells them to. He's the one that has power over disease. That in a moment, a woman touches not even him, just his clothes, and she's healed from a hopeless situation that has existed for 12 years. No one could do anything for her, and Jesus heals her in a moment. And then the ultimate hopeless situation, the girl dies, and Jesus raises her from the dead. Who is Jesus? He has authority over creation. He has authority over demons. He has authority over disease. He has authority over death. That's who he is. And now, we need to believe. That's the power of Jesus. But it is inaccessible unless it intersects with faith. Do you believe that that's who he is? It's of no value if you do not believe. You've got an outlet in your wall. We have plugs here in the wall. It's filled with power. And it means absolutely nothing to us unless we have a cord and a plug to put into the wall and access the power. The power of Jesus means nothing if you do not have faith, if you do not put your faith in him alone. Think about a U-Haul storage unit just filled with anything and everything that you could ever need. But you can't open it. It's useless to you unless you have the key. And the key is faith. All the riches of who Jesus is, all the power of who Jesus is are accessible only through faith, only through belief. He's not telling us, you got to do all these good things and then you'll have the things that I want for you. He's not telling us, you, you have to be a certain person and then you'll receive my power. No, he's saying, if you, if you just believe, if you believe who I am, you will receive everything that I have for you. And so as we've been walking through and as we continue to ask this question, who is Jesus? I just want to encourage us that you can know everything about who Jesus is. You can have the whole list of beyond just you know disease, death, demons, creation. You can have all that. But if you don't believe it, it's totally useless. And here's two people. Two people in the midst of obstacles, in the midst of hopeless situations, in the midst of people laughing at them, in the midst of people mocking them, in the midst of people telling them, don't bother with Jesus. They persevere through and they believe. And when their faith and the power of Jesus intersect, amazing and astonishing things happen. And so I just want to encourage us as we head into this week, think about the power of Jesus. But don't just think about it. Believe it. Believe who he is. Put your faith in him. 
Let me pray for us. Hallelujah, God. We worship you. Jesus, where else where else would we go? There is there is no one like you. Lord, every human being combined, all the gods that are not gods at all, they pale in comparison to who you are. Everyone must bow before you and beg for mercy. Jesus, you are the Lord of creation. All that you have made bows before you. Lord, you are Lord over demons. They they can do nothing. Apart from you, they weep before you. They have nothing to do apart from your say. Disease has no hold on anyone apart from you, Lord. And, and with a word, with a touch, it is gone. But in death, our greatest enemy, it is, it is dead. You have trampled over it through your death and your resurrection. It has no hold on us anymore. And so God, fill us with faith. We just want to doubt so often. We want to forget who you are. We listen to all the voices that surround us. God, silence them. And, and in this moment, draw out, please, your word. These, these beautiful examples of faith. And help us to be like them. To trust and to believe who you are. And God, I pray. I pray that you would help us not to be silent. But that throughout this week and in the days and weeks and even years to come, that we would be a people that testifies to who you are. Lord, that as our faith intersects with your power, astonishing things happen in our lives, and we want to testify to them, not for our glory, but for yours, and so that others would be strengthened in their faith. So, God, I pray I pray that in particular. Strengthen our faith today. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.